Israel's miraculous success during the Six-Day War baffles historians, and the ramifications of that war still shapes Israel today. In this class, we learn the story and the lessons of the miraculous Six-Day War. As always, please like and share this podcast, and feel free to leave us a question or a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Math. The Six-Day War. In uh, Torah, when you read about the story of the Exodus, the Jews, they leave Egypt, and plagues, splitting of the sea, and all the miracles. And Ramban, Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides, writing in the late 13th century, points out that so central to Jewish belief is the story of the Exodus. And he talks about, it's one of the most important, probably the most important essay that, that Ramban ever wrote. It's his commentary right at the story of the Exodus, after the story of the Exodus. And he talks about the centrality that Yetzias Mitzrayim, that the Exodus has in Judaism, because it represents God's dominion of the world, not just the fact that God created the world, but the fact that God is involved in the, in the affairs of mankind. And he talks about the roles of the miracles, the masos, the osos, the moksim, the signs, the wonders, the miracles of the Exodus. And we've, for those who've been coming to the explanatory service every Saturday morning, 9.45 a.m., we've talked about the idea that Ramban shares, which is so fundamental. He says, By studying the miracles, the well-known and gigantic miracles, like the exodus from Egypt, Adam Makir, a person begins to understand and recognize Hanisim Hanistarim, the hidden miracles that are all around us. What's Ramban referring to? So I believe what Ramban is referring to is the fact that we all understand and we all recognize when we take a moment to pause that the world around us is filled with miracles. From the birth of a child to a sunrise, to the beautiful mountains that are right here in our valley. There are so many miracles around us. The problem is we live our lives on routine. We coast through life and we often fail to stop and recognize and say, well, wait a minute. There are so many beautiful, wonderful miracles all around us. Now, God doesn't split the sea quite like he used to. We don't have biblical miracles nowadays. But we still have remarkable events that just defy the laws of history, defy the laws of how nations interact with one another. And I think in recent memory, the 1967 Six-Day War has to be towards the top of that list of just miraculous, unimaginable coincidences or divine intervention. We're going to take a few moments tonight to talk about the story, the background, the history of the 1967, the Six-Day War. And we'll also try to find some lessons, some Torah ideas that we can all take home and apply to ourselves. Befittingly, we, I decided to, I chose to teach this topic tonight. Tonight and tomorrow, of course, our Yom HaZikaron, it's Israel's Memorial Day as we Recall and, and remember those who have fallen to keep the state of Israel safe. And of course, the following day is Yom HaAtzmaut, Israel's Independence Day, 75 years. Now, I wasn't around 75 years ago. But for those who were, probably would tell you the odds of Israel being still you know, around today and thriving as it is today. That's no small miracle. Israel's a tiny country. As you see on our maps over here, Israel is an absolutely tiny country. The blue in the maps, for those who could see, that's what Israel represented. That's the boundaries of Israel on June 4th, 1967, before the war opened. It was tiny. And it's, it's actually a remarkable thing. We talked about this again at the explanatory service when Saturday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Oh. We talked about 
It's really, a, it's, it's an astounding thing. You talk about Israel today. I, I should have done this. I, I didn't have a chance. Take any newspaper, any newspaper, the Las Vegas Review Journal, the, whichever newspaper, take agendas out of it, anti-Semitism out of it. Google, how many times did that newspaper cite Israel? Did the word Israel in the last 365 days, how many times did they talk about Israel? And then Google, how many times that same newspaper talk about Pennsylvania? Not to pick on my friends from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is an important state in our union. I assure you that newspaper covered Israel, I don't know, five times as much as it talked about Pennsylvania. It doesn't make sense. When you think about Israel, it's tiny. There's nobody. It's a teeny place. Yet it's always in the news. We're always talking about Israel, this, Israel, that. And we talked about on Shabbos, the verse in Deuteronomy, it says, Eretz asher Hashem elokecha doreshosah. The land of Israel is a land that God investigates. Tamid ene Hashem elokecha ba. Constantly are the eyes of God upon it. May reishis hashana van achris hashana. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year, says Rabbeinu Bachai, one of the classic commentaries, the land of Israel has a special divine hashkacha pratis, that God's divine intervention is more pronounced in the land of Israel than it is in other lands. And perhaps no more so was that demonstrated than in June in 1967. To understand the background, the context of where the Six-Day War came from and how it started, you kind of have to back up, oh, about 1,500 years. And without getting too deep into Arab-Israeli conflict, Arab-Jewish and Muslim-Jewish conflict, it is always important whenever we talk about these issues, just to take a moment and recognize and understand a concept in Islamic theology, which you may or may not have been familiar with, called dhimmi. Dhimmi, D-H-I-M-M-I. Dhimmi is a theological concept in Islam. See, many, many people, most people think that in Islam, the way fundamentalist Islam, uh, you know, Muslims view the world is that you're either a Muslim or you're an infidel. Either you're a Muslim or we got to burn you at the stake. That's not true. In Islam, you're a Muslim. You can be an infidel. But there is something in between called a dhimmi. A dhimmi is a person of the book, particularly Jews, some Christians. And dhimmis are welcome within Islamic life. So long that they understand that they're second-class citizens. A dhimmi, a Jew, could live happily in Islamic territory so long that they understood that they were second-class citizens. They had to pay special taxes called the jizya tax. There are all sorts of religious and social restrictions and limitations. I always give as an analogy, we think that the Nazis were the one who came up with the yellow star. That's not true. Muslims came up with that as an easy way of identifying and ridiculing Jews. And although Jews were denigrated to second-class citizenship, strangely enough, the system worked for 1,400 years. The story of Ashkenazic Jewry is a, far, uh, is a far worse story than the story of Spartak Jewry over the last 1,500 years. Because for the most part, most Spartak Jews found themselves living in Muslim countries. And yes, they were second-class second citizens, denied many basic rights, but they were allowed to coexist. And typically, for the vast majority, they weren't persecuted. Ashkenazic Jews had to deal with all sorts of pogroms and blood libels and gas chambers and all sorts of horrible things. And that was fine and well until 1948. In 1948, when the state of Israel was formed and created, aside from the political tensions it created with the Arab world, aside from the social tensions it created with the Arab world, it created another tension. It created a theological tension. Because how can you have a Jewish state right smack in the middle of Arab society, that runs contrary to Dimi. How can Israel go ahead and send athletes to the Olympics and compete with Arabs? We're supposed to be second-class citizens. 
How could we go ahead and build a nuclear reactor? How could we have a military better than the Arabs? That runs contrary to Dimi. It's an important point, politicians, to recognize every four years, the next administration comes in and says, I'll solve Middle East politics. And aside from the fact that it goes back, you got about 1,500 years of entangled, you know, mess. You also have to deal with the fact that there is a theological tension there that has to be resolved. With that context, after the formation of State of Israel, 1956, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, who's going to be the villain of our story, he wanted to raise the banner of himself. He was an egomaniac of sorts. And he also wanted to raise Egyptian pride. And the theory, the plan that he had was to go and nationalize the Suez Canal, to run straight through Egypt. Up to that point, the Suez Canal wasn't really under Egyptian control. He had this brilliant idea, I'm going to nationalize the canal. And the British and the French and the Israelis kind of didn't like that. And they invaded Egypt, and this was the Suez Crisis of 1956, to go ahead and open up the Suez Canal. Nasser had also blockaded the Straits of Tehran right down here on your map. Elon is at the southern tip of Israel. To get to Elon, you have to go up through the Red Sea over here and up the Gulf of Aqaba to Elon. And there's a very short, narrow waterway over here called the Straits of Tehran. You close those straits, no shipping gets through to Elon. And that's what happened in 1956. And Israel in the 56 Suez crisis opened it up. After the 56 crisis, the United Nations stepped in to try to create peace in the region. And they sent in the UN Emergency Force peacekeepers, the UNAF peacekeepers in the Sinai to keep the peace between the Israelis and the Egyptians. And after the 56 war, the region returned to an uneasy balance without resolution of the underlying issues. But to some degree, after 56, things kind of stayed at this funny impasse. Another key piece of background to the war was Nasser, again, the president of Egypt, had this brilliant idea of building a dam, the Aswan High Dam, on the Nile River. It was actually a terrible idea and still is a terrible idea. It creates terrible environmental hazards and all sorts of health issues on the Nile. But he had this brilliant idea. This was his big project. He wanted to build a dam on the Nile. And it was a failed project. And first, he got the backing financially of the United States, but he couldn't play nicely with the Americans. So he shopped around and got the Soviets to help him out, which was a double-edged sword. Because once you brought the Soviets in, well, the Soviets don't just like giving money. They like giving money if, you gave a, if they got a lot of influence in return. And beginning the early 60s, the Soviet Union began to dominate Egyptian life. And there were thousands of... Soviet peacekeepers and Soviet, who knows what, in Egypt dealing with this dam, which created a complicated geopolitical situation. Additionally, Egypt, again, to bolster their national pride, had gotten themselves into, somehow managed to get themselves involved in Yemen's civil war. There was a civil war happening in the 60s in Yemen. Why did the Egyptians decide to get involved? Really didn't make any sense. But they wanted to get involved to exert their influence and become regional powerhouses. And Yemen turned into what was called Egyptians' Vietnam. It was a quagmire with no easy way out. And it ended up being somewhat of a black eye to the Egyptians and to Nasser. It was an attempt for national pride. But because there was no clear exit strategy, it actually made Nasser look quite silly. Another critical element, an ingredient to the tensions that would emerge in 67 was the fact that Israel, and my dad always tells the following story. My dad, a blessed memory, was very involved in the military. He did a lot of work with Israel. And he always used to say how one time he went to Demona. Anyone been to Demona in Israel? What's in Demona in Israel? My dad used to say it's the most heavily guarded textile plant he's ever seen in his life. Demona, of course, is Israel's nuclear reactor. What are you talking about? They don't have a nuclear reactor. 
right? They have, all right, everyone, it's the worst kept secret in Israel is there's Israel's nuclear capacity in, in Dimona. They've never acknowledged, I think till this day, they won't acknowledge that they have a nuclear reactor in Dimona. Dimona was being built. And that is, it's an interesting thing. I should mention, anyone wants to read a book about the Six-Day War, there are a lot of very, very good books. The best book, without question, is Michael Oren's Six Days in, July, in June, I believe the name of the book. Phenomenal one-volume book, about 500 pages. It's an easy read, fantastic book. He doesn't emphasize Demona as much as the sense that I, I think other, you know, other scholars will tell you. The fact that Israel was building a nuclear power plant totally shifted the balance of power in Egypt and the Middle East in general. And Nasser wasn't happy about that. Additionally, up north, north in, in, in northern Israel, you had Syria. Israel and Syria had been bickering over borders since 48. And they had been shelling, the Syrians had been shelling Israel from the Golan Heights on top of Israel, down to the Sea of Galilee, particularly fishing boats that were in the Sea of Galilee and all, all all the farms along the along the along the sea. And they had this idea, they had just been provoking Israel. Israel in the 60s, had, it, it's funny, Israel is very similar like to Nevada. Israel does not have enough rain, does not have enough water. Water is life in Israel, and water is precious. And it was really the prime minister of Israel at this time, he's going to be the I guess the good guy of our, of our story, was a man named Levi Eshkol. Levi Eshkol was not a particularly charismatic person, as we'll see in a few moments, wasn't a particularly inspiring leader. He's what you would call a technocrat. He was a very much by the book, very uninspiring, but he was a good man, just not a particularly inspiring leader. One of his dreams, one of his real projects that he spent a lot of time working on was the Israel, the Israel Waterworks, the Israel Water Carrier, it's called Hamuvil Ha'artzi, it still exists today, which was a major waterworks, which brings water from the north in the, in the Galilee, northern Israel, there's plenty of water, and transfer that water down throughout Israel. Syria hated that. Many of the Arabs hated that. Why? If you can get more water to other parts of the country, guess what you can do? You can grow more wheat and corn. And if you can grow more wheat and corn, guess what else can happen? more Jews can settle the land of Israel. So they didn't like that. And they had this plan of diverting the headwaters of the Jordan River, the Banyas and the Chitzbani rivers, which form the Northern Jordan. The Jordan River goes between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, but there's also a Northern part of the Jordan, North of the Sea of Galilee. And they wanted to go and block the, the headwaters up here, up in the Golan and divert the Banyas. Anyone go to the, go to the Banyas, it's a beautiful place to hike. You got, they wanted to divert the water. Eshkol got very, very nervous about that. Because water, as we know here in Nevada, means life. One last funny piece that has to do with Syria is something that's kind of a footnote in history, but I think it's very important. Did you know that in the early 60s, Syria and Egypt were actually one country? The United Arab Republic, the UAR. Nasser, who wanted... So really, again, he wanted to, he was an egotist. He wanted to show how important he wanted to consolidate power. He had this brilliant idea of uniting Syria and Egypt. He wanted to influence other countries as well as one country called the UAR, United Arab Republic. It eventually dissolved. It would dissolve, I don't know, something like 63 or 64. It didn't last very long. But Egypt still had their fingers very much in the hold of Syria. Now, of course, to the east of Israel is Jordan. Jordan kind of had a, also like an uneasy piece is the wrong, not the right word, an uneasy, quiet, fragile trust between Israel and, and Jordan. But there had always been small border skirmishes but since 48 to 67. And really in 67, those skirmishes, and those border raids really increased. Those were the background events, bringing us to May of 1967. In May of 1967, things just dominoed and snowballed, or whatever other metaphor you want to use, to a crisis. In May, on May 13th, 1967, Nasser receives reports from the Soviets that Israel is massing their troops 
on the Syrian border. They're going to invade. And that was completely fabricated. And on Ayom Hazad, till today, it's still one the great mystery of the Six-Day War is why did the Russians make this up? Israel was not, you know, staging any troops on the Syrian border. It was totally false. And it's still unclear why the Russians spread that rumor. But Nasser believed it, or at least he wanted to believe it. The only thing, I mean, again, it's not, it doesn't really explain it, but one thing to understand the Russians, the Russians are, have been and still are, um, they've always been sinister and always conniving. And it's hard to know exactly what happened, but they like stirring the pot. And they still do like stirring the pot. And they stirred the pot with Nasser by telling him the Israelis, they're sending all their troops up to the borders. Now, Russia had a very interesting position. It wouldn't work quite the way they did, but the way they thought. But they had a very interesting calculus. If Egypt would lose a war, well, that would be good for the Soviet Union because now Egypt would have to become even more beholden to the Soviets. If Egypt won a war, well, of course, it's all because of the Soviets. So they were really in a win-win situation, which is, again, one of the theories why they wanted to stir the pot. It would only be good for the Russians. On May 15th, 1967, was Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day in 1967. Israel's is there, I think it was their 18th anniversary or of, of 19th, 19th anniversary. And they went, they went and they had a, um, a military parade. Now that backfired for two reasons. Number one, they did it in Jerusalem. And the Arabs, the tensions had already started to get riled up and the Arabs got very sensitive. Jerusalem, you recall in 67 was a divided city, <clears throat> split right down the middle. And many of the Arabs didn't like the fact that Israel was having a military parade in Jerusalem. They felt Jerusalem was their city and Israel was rocking the boat. Secondly, the Russians said, you see, where are all the Israeli troops and all the Israeli heavy artillery? Everything's being moved. Now, Israel was moving it and moving their troops for this military parade, the Omad's foot, Israeli independence parade. The Russians were saying, you know why all there's all this troop movement? Sending them to the border of Syria. There's an invasion coming. Nasser, beware. In, on May 16th, in, again, this is literally the next day, Nasser has a great idea. Remember those peace... The, U, the UN peacekeepers that were on the Egyptian-Israeli border? Nasser had a brilliant idea. He knocks on the door of the UN. He tells the UN Secretary General, Ufant, he tells him, I would like, please, for those peacekeepers to leave. And Uthant, the Secretary General of the UN, said, fine, shalom. And they left. It was one of the... Most shameful, I mean, the UN is a shameful body. And this was, su su surprisingly, one of the most shameful moments in the UN history. They just said, fine, Nasser said to leave, we'll leave. And the pressure begins to mount and increase in that pressure cooker. On May 22nd, just a few days later, Nasser decides he's going to once again close the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. Close the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. And that, said Levi Ashgal, that's a cause for war. You close the Straits of Tehran, Israel can't ship oil, they can't ship their goods, you're going to starve the country. It's a, functionally a blockade against Israel, and that's an act of war. And Ashkel announced that all the other Arab countries, in response to Nasser's aggression, they signed a pact of allegiance with Nasser. Jordan's King Hussein, he gets caught up in that wave of pan-Arab nationalism. Iraq, Sudan, Sudan, Kuwait, Algeria. Assad. Syria's defense minister declares our forces are now entirely ready not only to repulse the aggression, but to initiate the act of liberation itself and to explode the Zionist presence in the Arab homeland. The UN did nothing. Israel has no choice. As things are just spiraling out of control, what do they have to do? They have to call up their reserves. 
Israel was and still is a civilian as a civilian army. Israel's army, army is, is tiny, and it's a tiny country, and, order, and in a very hostile corner of the world. And in order to protect itself, Israel has had and still has a draft. If you're of military age, you've got to fight. Now, most people aren't in the permanent army. What they do is you're just a reservist. To call up the reserves is a huge deal for two reasons. You've got to pay them and feed them. There's a huge economic price to be paid. And number two, it shuts down the country. Because now all you have, anyone who's between the ages of 20 and 50, is now manning a trench, driving a jeep, holding a gun, not plowing a field, teaching in a classroom, working in a shopping mall. Statistics say it costs $20 million a day back in 1967. Egyptian general Amer, who was a close friend of Nasser, who was a weird guy, he was the closest, best friend of Nasser and his greatest political rival, all in one. He had this brilliant idea of launching Operation Dawn, which called for strategic bombing of Israeli airfields, ports, cities, and the Demona nuclear reactor. Arab armies would then invade Israel, cut it in half with an armored thrust towards the Negev. Nasser at this point got cold feet. He got a little chicken and, was, and he called off Operation Dawn. He wasn't so sure. Israel was under enormous international pressure. Obviously, the Russians didn't want Israel to go to war. But the United States also didn't want, the, didn't want Israel to go to war. Because they were concerned it would trigger an international conflict with the Soviets. And the United States didn't, you know, they weren't interested in another Vietnam. They weren't, again, the president of the United States Times, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was feeling the pressure and the heat from the failed Vietnam War, socially, he was, he was facing tremendous pressure. The last thing he wanted was another conflict. And they put, they turned the screws tight on Israel that Israel better not fire the first shot here. They did not want Israel going to war. Abi Ibn, Israel's Minister of Foreign Affairs, travels the world searching for diplomatic support, couldn't get any answers. France, who had basically supplied Israel's military up to this point, France, they got their act together as true to themselves of being anti-Semites. They realized they had that brief spasm for about 20 years where they helped, helped out Israel. Well, they finally woke up to their better senses and decided we're no longer helping Israel. And Uthant at the UN, still sleeping, trying to put, put peace together. What was going to happen? The eve of the war, it's June 1967. Both Israel and, the, and its Arab neighbors have their troops ready for war. Israel has 240,000 troops. Almost all of them are reserves. These are not full-time soldiers. 800 tanks. 300 combat aircraft. Arabs have 340,000 trained professional soldiers, 1,800 tanks, 660 combat aircraft. There's an amazing verse in the Torah. The Torah tells us that a farmer in the land of Israel, back in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, back in biblical times, the times of the temple, there was a mitzvah called Bikurim. What was the mitzvah of Bikurim? You were a farmer in Israel, it was an agrarian society. Your first fruit, the first of your produce, you would bring it to, to Jerusalem, you'd bring it to the base of Mikdash, to the Holy Temple, and you'd bring it as an offering to God, thanking God for the bounty that the land produced. It was a moment, an expression of a karsatov of gratitude. Thank you, God. I appreciate and understand my land produced what it was supposed to pr produce because you, God, you decided and you willed it to happen. And thank you. And that was the mitzvah of Bikurim. But if you look at the verse carefully, the pilgrims, they would come to Jerusalem. They would come to the base of Migdash, to the temple. But they would have to recite the Vidoy Bikurim. There was a special recitation that had to be recited, which, by the way, makes up the bulk or a big chunk of the Passover Haggadah that we recite on the Seder night. Arami Oved Avi Bayerit Mitzrayim Avi Yagrasham that Arami Oved Avi, we start, the pilgrim begins by proclaiming that an Armenian, that was Lavan, Jacob's father-in-law, Bikesh Lavan Lakaras Akal, Lavan wanted to destroy the Jewish people before we were even the Jewish people. Lavan wanted to go 
and kill out his own son-in-law, Yaakov, and destroy the Jewish people, nip him in the bud. But you, God, you saved him. Thank you. And then we went down to the land of Egypt. We were persecuted. The Egyptians treated us terribly. We cry out to God. God listened to our prayers. God saw the struggle that we were in. And God took us out. And the pilgrim would declare the whole history of the Jewish people, the origins of the Jewish people, all the challenges that we had with Laban, with Egypt. And now, now God, you brought me into this land, the land of Israel. And my field did what it was supposed to do. Thank you very much, God. Question that all the shown in the commentaries want to know. This is very nice. It's a moment. It's an expression of Akara Satov of gratitude. Why all the Jewish history? Why do you, the guy, the poor farmer is coming to offer his thanksgiving to God for his first fruit. Why does he have to go through Lavan and Jacob and Egypt? Why is all that necessary? Says the Gorarie, the great morale from Prague. He says, it's not enough to just have gratitude for the good that you have in your life. Thank God, job is fine, my kids are all right, life is good, and I'm appreciative. And I say, I pray three times a day, thank you, God, really, thank you so much for all the good that's in my life. There's real genuine appreciation, genuine akarsato. We think that's terrific, amazing. Says the morale, it's not good enough. God is teaching us a lesson. It's not okay to just have appreciation and gratitude for the good in your life. You also have to have gratitude and appreciation for all the goodness and kindness God has done for your ancestors and for those who came before you. You didn't just all of a sudden come onto the scene out of nowhere. There are generations who came before you and God saved them as well. And God has done kindness to those who have come before us. And the Torah is telling us you have to have gratitude for the kindness, not just in our lives, but in the people that came before us. If you stop right here at the beginning of June 1967, we stop our story. I wasn't alive in 1967. If you read the stories of what Jew, the Jewish world looked like, June 1st, June 2nd, June 3rd, 1967, it's unimaginable. It was the Holocaust about to happen all over again. The Arabs were all massed around Israel openly declaring that we are planning on driving them into the sea. You know, nowadays, our enemies have a little bit more tact. We don't, some of them have no problem saying we want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. But most of them don't. Oh, we say, no, peace, of course. But Israelis, they're the aggressor. There they were saying openly, we want to annihilate the Jews. We want to kill the Jews. What Hitler couldn't finish, we will. One of the most amazing books, book called The Prime Ministers. You got to read the book. If you want to read one book on Jewish history, it's called The Prime Ministers by Yehuda Avner, an amazing book. And he writes how he was there. He was one of Levi Eshkol's speechwriters. And he was there at the time. And he writes how he was in Jerusalem. He saw a bunch of rabbis going to Liberty Park in Israel, in Jerusalem. He sees these rabbis. It's the beginning of June with tape measures and saying prayers, middle of the big open. Parks in the middle of the city and ask, what are you doing? He says, oh, we're consecrating this for mass graves. All of the mill workers were put on, on, on notice, start making caskets. Israel was expecting mass casualties. Germany, I think it was Brazil, a couple other South, interesting, it's Germany, and a couple other South, South American countries. They had already started calling up Israel. Here's what you'll do with all the refugees, all the, all the I mean, because Israel's going to lose and get crushed. Where's everyone going to go? So those few who survive will be willing to take in 10,000 refugees. You'll take another refugee. It was the Holocaust all over. People, the religious, were declaring fast days. Levi Eshkol, sad story. We mentioned he wasn't a particular, he was a good man, but not a particularly inspiring man. He gets up on the radio on TV as well, for a national broadcast. It was the most uninspiring speech a leader has ever made. He lost track of his place. He basically broke down in the middle of the speech in front of the entire country. 
Yitzchak Rabin, who is the chief of staff of the Israel, Israeli military, he went to see great sage of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, who was living on his little farm to get advice. And Ben-Gurion basically told him, you guys messed up royally. I don't know how you got yourselves into this mess. You have no way out. If I were you, I would do whatever I can to get out of this thing, sue for peace somehow. You guys are really in a bad shape. You've ruined the country. Not a particularly inspiring message. Rabin would go home and he collapsed. He had a nervous breakdown. Israel would say that he had nicotine poisoning. He didn't. He had a nervous collapse. The chief of staff, because the situation was so dire. That's what Israel looked like on June 4th, 1967. Remember the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? His brothers want to kill him. Remember that story? Remember the story of Joseph? Brothers want to kill him. Instead of killing him, what do they do? They sell him as a slave. And he gets sold from one place to another. Where does he end up? Ironically for our story, in Egypt. And he ends up, he's, in a, he's a slave in Egypt. Then he gets accused falsely of committing a crime of rape. It was trumped up charges. He ends up in a prison. Think about that. You've just been kidnapped, sold as a slave, and accused wrongfully of committing a horrible crime. And you're now in a dungeon for two years. It's the, you're in a foreign land. You shouldn't be here. You don't speak the language. You don't know what's going on. You're a slave. You're a, in prison. It was a hard, I mean, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. It doesn't get worse than that. And then what happens? One day, the Pharaoh can't sleep. He has a dream. He's dreaming about fat cows and skinny cows and wheat and think cows eating other cows. One thing leads to another. He calls his Joseph. So how, how that happens crazy. They ask, of all people, they ask for Joseph to interpret the dream. Joseph talks about seven fat years, seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. Next thing you know, Joseph is the president of Egypt. It's unimaginable. Just like that. And says Rabbi Sparno, if I can embellish, my guess is that everyone in this room has felt at some point in your life, you've dealt with some kind of crisis, relationship, financial crisis, health, something. And have you ever felt trapped? Like, I don't know how I'm getting out of this pickle. I'm in a jam and I don't know what to do. And it's such a helpless feeling. What do I do? How do I solve this problem? And says Rabbi Sparno, always read, remember that story with Joseph. And always remember, Yeshua Hashem, Kimo Rega. The salvations of God can happen in an instant. My guess, when I think of the moments when I felt trapped in my life, they were bad. I don't know if they were quite as bad as Joseph. And look what happened in the blink of an eye. He goes from prisoner, slave, king of the land. You should never feel trapped. Does that mean that next time you find yourself trapped, next time you find yourself in a jam, does that mean I guarantee you God will save you and redeem you? No. I don't know what God's plan is, but never think that God can't save you. No matter how bad your situation is, if God wants to, you're never trapped. That's the story of the Six-Day War. After a lot of haggling disagreement in the Israeli cabinet, the Israeli cabinet at this point should be worth noting, Eshkol decides on, he's under tremendous pressure. They decide the way Israel governs today and has, has always governed is Israel is a parliamentary government. Basically, you have to win a majority of the government. Now your party's in power. No party has ever won a majority. So what you have to do is you cobble together coalitions which is why Israel's had, what, 10 elections in the last 15 minutes? is because the coalitions always fall apart. Israel's never had a majority, a majority government. This moment of crisis, Eshkol decides we need to have a unity government. They brought in the exiled Menachem Begin into the government so that Israel, it, you know, you think the United States has divided politics. You've never been to Israel. But they decided to unify in this moment of crisis. They brought in Menachem Begin to join the government. And they also brought in Moshe Dayan, who was a great warrior. You ever seen pictures of Moshe Dayan, the one-eyed you know, pirate? 
And they brought him in. They brought in Moshe Dayan into the government. He would be the defense minister. And after a lot of back and forth, they decided Israel would go on a preemptive strike. And Israel decides on a preemptive strike on Sunday, June 5th. I don't know much about military strategy. I don't know X's and O's about military. But typically, if you're going to go on a air raid, you want to go first thing in the morning. Sun is low on the horizon, so you can see, but it's hard to see the planes coming in. Egypt knew that there was a strong chance that Israel would go on a preemptive strike. And they were at full alert. Comes the dawn, nothing doing. Israel realized if they want to do a surprise attack, don't come when they're expecting you. Rather, what did they do? Wait until 7.45 a.m. What's at 7.45 a.m.? The Egyptian pilots have their coffee break, of course, at 7.45 a.m. So all the pilots were on the ground sipping their coffee. How did Israel know that? Because Israel knows and always does know everything because their intelligence was amazing. And they had learned that the Egyptian pilots are all sipping their coffee and tea at 7.45. They, they, the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, they flew west over the Mediterranean. They, they flew out not even 100 feet over the water. So to go under the Egyptian radar, and the Egyptian radar didn't detect that Israel sent their air force. Israel sent virtually every single plane that they had on this raid over the Mediterranean, they also sent some over the Gulf to go attack Egypt, the Egyptian air force, but it didn't work. The Jordanians caught them. The Jordanian raid, this is a story that they don't tell. The Jordanian radar caught it. They picked up all the Israelis and they started wiring urgently to Egypt. War, war, war. The IAF is in the air. They're sending every plane. Get your fighters into the sky and knock them out. But what happened? The Jordanians had changed their frequency the night before, and the Egyptians didn't know. And the one guy who would have figured it out, the Egyptian code guy, he went to sleep. So it was the second guy who was there. And they totally missed them. They didn't hear it. Miracles? Coincidence? No. The Israeli planes went on three major sorties. They took, took 20 minutes to fly to Egypt. Then they would go, they would bomb first the beginning. They first blew out all the runways. Because when you blow out a runway, you can't, the fighters can't get into the air. Now, blowing out a runway is not really a big deal because you can easily fix a runway. It takes not, 20, not even 24 hours to fix a runway. The problem is, is that Israel then sent their planes back to Israel, took seven minutes to refuel, then went straight back and then blew up every, almost every plane. They caught 90% of Egypt's airplane, uh, air force on the ground and blew them all up. And then just blew out. And once they... And the six-day war, we'll talk about what happened for the next six days. The six-day war was really the six-hour. Because once the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed, and it was destroyed virtually immediately, that was the end of the game. Now it was just a matter of mopping up. The war was over. Yeshua Sashem, Kimorega. That's literal. It's not even a six-day war. It was hours, and the thing was over. Why didn't Egypt shoot anti-aircraft at the Israeli... Planes coming in. Remember our good friend, the Egyptian, he was the head general, the army commander, General Abde, uh, Amer. Well, Amer was in the air. He was going to, he was flying on a plane to go check out some installation. And he had strict orders. No anti-aircraft should be fired for the next couple hours because I don't get shot down. Pure coincidence. That's exactly when Israel sent every... So they couldn't even shoot their hand. They, they were on strict orders, no anti-aircraft. And Israel destroyed the entire Egyptian air force. Many of the Egyptian units, the ground units in the Sinai, they still remained intact. And they could have put up a good fighting. But once the air, once, once Egyptian air force was destroyed, so now it's just, you're, sitting, you're shooting sitting ducks. And Nasser panicked, and eventually he would order a retreat, and, and it was a pell-mell scramble, every man for themselves. And all the next, over the next 72 hours, the entire Egyptian army in the, in the, in the Sinai Peninsula would scurry back and see these three main passes through the Mitla Pass. By the end of the day, of Sunday of the 5th, they knew, they, Israel knew that they had it won. They even sent 
most of their army units up north to deal with other things we'll talk about in a minute. And it would just be another 72 hours and basically everyone was across, the entire Egyptian army was across the Suez. Nasser, after his entire, knowing his entire air force and his entire military was destroyed, what did he do? He gets on the phone and he calls King Hussein of Jordan. Tel Aviv is in flames. We've destroyed the Israeli Air Force. Quick, now's the time to act. Go shell Jerusalem. Go shell Tel Aviv. Go fight. And King Hussein of Jordan butted. It's an amazing passage. My rabbi would always, one of my rabbis would always just share. The Pharaoh. Talk about the Pharaoh again. Evil Egyptian rulers. The Pharaoh, the verse tells us, person who's cruel will eventually be cruel to himself. That's the story of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh self-destructed. He was cruel to the Israelis, to, to the Jews in Egypt, and eventually he would stubbornly refuse to his own detriment to let the Jews out, and his entire nation was destroyed. And my rabbi will always point out it's an amazing thing. Why did the Pharaoh self-destruct? Because when you're cruel to others, you can't compartmentalize cruelty. You're cruel to others, you will eventually be cruel to yourself. If you can't have compassion and love to others, you're not going to be able to be compassionate and loving to yourself, and you're going to self-destruct. That's really the story of what happened with Hussein and Nasser. The Israelis immediately told Hussein, don't get into this thing. Stay out. We have no interest in starting a second front against Jordan. Stay out. And they pleaded through the UN, through three different channels to get through to Hussein. Don't attack. There's just, stay home. We're not interested. Don't buy it. But Hussein couldn't hold him, couldn't contain himself. And when he hears that Israel is being destroyed by the Egyptian Air Force, he bought it. And they started shelling Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Israel had no other option. The IAF, the Israeli Air Force, well, they had just destroyed each the Egyptian Air Force and really had nothing else to do. So on to Jordan and destroyed Jordan's Air Force. When they were done with that, they decided, well, let's just call it the trifecta and they destroyed Syria's Air Force. All was in one day. And fierce fighting broke out around Jerusalem. It's an amazing, amazing story. It's just again, you talk about all coincidence, no divine involvement. Broadcast on Jordanian radio on this is again Sunday, June 5th. Being broadcast on Jordanian radio was that the Jordanian army is conquering the Israeli aggressors. And if you've ever go to Israel, south of the old city, which again, the old city of Jerusalem is under Jordanian control. No Jew had prayed at the Western Wall since 1948. South of the old city is a small place. Now it doesn't really, part of, it's just now swallowed up with, with in, in the suburban sprawl, I guess, of Jerusalem. It's called Government House Ridge. It's directly south. It's kind of like near Talpiot-ish. And Jordanian radio broadcasts, there's intense fighting. At Government House Ridge, the Jordanian army is victorious. The general commanding the Jerusalem area was a, a general named Uzi Narkis, and he realized there's no fighting at Government House Ridge. What are they talking about? Why are they broadcasting that there's intense fighting at Government House Ridge? It's not true. A few hours later, the Jordanians attacked Government House Ridge, and there was fierce fighting. A couple hours later, directly north of the old city, separated from Western Jerusalem, which is where, where the Jews were living, there was a, one mountain, mountaintop, called Mount Scopus, Harat Sofin, where you can you have a great view on the top of Mount Scopus, Hebrew University is. And it was, it was physically, geographically separated from the rest of Israel. They had to send transports once a week to give them food and supplies. And Narcus hears on the radio, there's tremendous fighting on top of Harat Sofin. On Mount Scopus. And he's like, there's no fighting. What are they talking about? And Narcus realized what was going on is the Jordanians had told their, it's Jordanian control, you know, the, the broadcast is called by the Jordanian government. And they had told them what the battle plan was. 
And the radio is just broadcasting what was supposed to happen that never did happen. And they basically told them the strategy. And Narcus realized, okay, so they're coming to Mount Scopus. And he sent all his troops to Mount Scopus. There was some very intense fighting there. If you ever go to Israel today, there's a place right near where I studied in Yeshiva, where I lived for two years, called Ammunition Hill, right on the foothill, kind of on the bottom of Mount Scopus. There was tremendous fighting. Um, and, and it was actually probably the worst fighting hand-to-hand combat of the whole Six-Day War. And eventually the Israelis found themselves, they had surrounded the old city. By late in that day, Jordan realized that their air force was destroyed and they were completely cut off. And they decided, shalom, we're, surre- we're, we're out of here. Which meant that the old city of Jerusalem was functionally an open city. Now, there was tremendous debate in the Israeli cabinet. Should we go into the old city of Jerusalem or not? Eventually, they decided to capture the old city. And on June, June 7th, 1967, Rabbi Goren pronounces and, and, and Matagor pronounces that Israel had indeed reunified Jerusalem. Once the capture of Jerusalem was complete, the Jordanian army had nowhere to go but downhill, literally, not figurative, literally. If you go from Jerusalem, you have to go down to Jericho. It's about 2,000 feet down to the Jordan River, and they had to cross the Jordan River. That's the only natural place to catch every cover, any cover. And the Jordanian army essentially retreated across the Jordan River. With them, tens of thousands of refugees further compounding the refugee crisis of Palestinians in Jordan, which is still a problem, Adayom Hazeh. This is an amazing story. That night, it's just a remarkable moment. The Western Wall, the Kotel, back in Jewish hands. Just unimaginable celebration. Rabbi Goren was the chief rabbi of the army. He was actually a general. He realized the next natural place to go was Hebron, Hebron, only 20 miles straight south of Jerusalem to Hebron. And he had just been there, captured the Kotel. He famous him blowing the shofar with his Torah scroll. And he told, tells all the soldiers, I wake me up in the morning. When you go, they knew everyone's going to Hebron. Wake me up. I want to be there to recapture Hebron. Jews hadn't been allowed to Hebron. You could only pray at the, on the Maras HaMachpela. They were only allowed to pray in the seventh step. They were Jews were banned. And he says, I want to go. Wake me up in the morning. He oversleeps. Wakes up in the morning. There isn't a soldier around him. He's like, the party started without me. He commandeers a Jeep, gets in a Jeep. I'm driving to Hebron. I don't want to miss the party. He gets to Hebron. Nobody's there. Literally. There isn't an Arab, nor is there an Israeli soldier. What's going on? He goes to the Mara Samachbela deserted. No soldiers, no Arabs. He pulls out his machine gun, his Uzi, shoots the gate, the lock. He goes into the Maras HaMachvela, blows the chauffeur, reads from the Torah, hangs an Israeli flag. What happened? All the Israeli troops, they hadn't left yet. They were just on the other side of the mountain preparing to go to, to Hebron. And he didn't realize that. All of the Jordanians, the Arabs that were there, They had learned that their army was destroyed and they were afraid of reprisals because of the 1929 massacres. The Arabs had massacred many Jews in Hebron and they put out white flags. They weren't interested. And Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, one rabbi with a beard, conquers a city of 80,000 people. He hangs a flag on top of the Maras HaMachpelah. This is a true story. Again, they had really retreated in all fairness. It wasn't really, he didn't single-handedly fight 80,000 people. But it's literally one man, just, it's just unimaginable. He hangs up a flag on top of the Maras Pela. And Moshe Dayan, who is not a very religious man, to say the least, told him, take down the flag, take out the Sefer Torah, and anyone who wants to enter, ha, enter, ha, wants to enter must take off the shoes. This building is a mosque. You've got to treat it with respect. Rabbi Goran said, the Sefer Torah is holy and it stays. The flag means to me what it means to you. If you want to remove it, you come and take it down. I'm not taking it down. Dayan sent an officer to Hebron to remove the flag in the Torah. On the way back to Jerusalem, the officer was killed in an automobile accident. I don't know if it's true. They said last story might not be true, but that's what they said. By the fourth day, hours late, so we're going to kind of move through the let. And by the fifth day of the war, 
Syria, Syria had still been bombarding and been shelling north, the northern Galilee. Syria, if you recall, there was really the start of, there was the reason why Israel went to war in the first place. And Syria's air force was destroyed. Jordan's air force was destroyed. Egypt's air force was destroyed. Everyone was kind of talking about ceasefire and suing for peace. And Israel was conflicted. If you've ever go to Israel, I urge you to go to the Golan Heights. Go to the Golan Heights. You go to, it's hard to explain how strategically important the Golan Heights is. I'm not supposed to talk politics. I'll talk politics. Don't give back the Golan Heights, Israel. Here's my rule. Someone goes ahead and punches, threatens me with a gun, and I punch them in the face and I take their gun. I stole your gun. It's your gun. I'm not returning it. I will fully acknowledge it's not mine. If you go to the Golan Heights today, you have a clear view of the entire Galilee. It is just a, an obviously strategic part, place. And for the last 19 years, they had been shelling Israel and all the farmers and, and, and settlers in the Galilee were constantly petitioning their government. We're living in a nightmare. And for 19 years, they slept, they, children who were born in that area slept in bunkers every night. Every day they were shelled. Finally, and Dion was conflicted. Do we really want to start yet a third front? And back and forth they went. Finally, they decided that they would go and, and try to capture the Golan Heights. Golan Heights, it's 1,700 feet straight up rocky. And it was well entrenched with pillboxes, fortifications, trenches. One of the most amazing stories, one of the great heroes. Last 50 years of Jewish history. Was a kadosh was a holy man named Eli Kohn, who you may have heard of. May have heard of him. He went by Kamel Amin Thabet. He infiltrated very deeply into the Syrian government. He was a spy, a double agent for the Mossad. At one point, he had raised, he had reached so high there was cocktail party talk of him running for president of Syria, and he had really made a deep relationship with the head, chief of staff of the Syrian army. And the story goes, look, it's not confirmed. I've spoken to soldiers who fought in 67, and everyone tells the story, so I'll tell it as well. That Eli Kohn convinced the, the Syrian army's chief of staff, these poor Syrian soldiers, the Golan Heights, if you're ever there in the heat of the summer, the sun is brutal. Got a great idea. By every pillbox and every bunker, just plant a eucalyptus tree. To give him shade. Eli Cohn was eventually caught and killed and executed, and his remains have still not been handed over to the Israelis. He's a kadosh, he's a holy person, a martyr, one of the martyrs of the Jewish, of Jewish people. Guess what happened when the Israelis in 1967 decided they wanted to go up the Golan Heights? What do you think they looked for? Eucalyptus trees. If you go there today, you go there today, if you go to the Golan Heights, you'll see by the old bombed out bunker, I don't know if it's still there. When I was in Yeshiva in Israel, I'm studying in Yeshiva, I used to go to the Golan, great place to hike. We used to go to the Golan all the time for hikes. Two amazing things. Number one, there's huge open fields. I think they're still trying to, still cordon off minefields. Mine, they're minefields. They still haven't cleared the mines from 367. And number two, the other thing you will see are blown out bunkers with eucalyptus trees. The end of the war, and eventually they would, they would, Israel would capture the Golan Heights, as well as Har Hermon, the Hermon Mountain, the Hermon Mountain. The top of the Hermon Mountain, you can look from the top of Hermon Mountain with a cheap pair of binoculars. You can see the number on the tails of planes landing in Damascus Airport. It's a very, very strategic area. There was tremendous inter international pressure on the Israelis to end the war. The Israelis didn't because they knew once a ceasefire was declared, they would not be able to capture more of the Golan. So they stalled and stalled and stalled as much as they could to buy them times to successfully capture the Golan Heights. It's interesting. One of the games that they played, it's just, they said, sure, Abba Ibn, who wasn't really, it's interesting. He's, for us diaspora Jews, Abba Ibn is a saint. Israel, they rolled their eyes when they thought of Abba Ibn. He was not really welcome in the government, but he was really a great man. and. He bought a lot of time for the Israelis to successfully complete the Six-Day War. And at one point, he's just his brilliant diplomatic mind 
Everyone was part of the United States, the USSR. Every by by the day by day five, the Soviet Union had broke diplomatic ties with Israel, and they were talking about ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. And he was smart. He said, "No problem. We agreed to a ceasefire. Just get the Egyptians to sign it first. He basically called Nasser's bluff because he knew Nasser would not be able to stomach successfully saying yes, we're a ceasefire because that would acknowledge that you've lost the war. Secondly, this was an important point. When Nasser finally admitted on the second, third day that his air force had been destroyed, he openly and publicly said that it was the United States and, and the United Kingdom, Great Britain, had actively sent their planes and they were part of the air force raid to, that blew up my, their, his air force. Now, why did he say that? First of all, it was good rhetoric and got his people riled up. Number two, I happen to think he probably thought it was true because he was so, it was such a lopsided victory in those first few hours. He couldn't have imagined that Israel did that on their own. And he was convinced that the Americans had invaded as well. And he kept on publicly proclaiming that. That really got under President Johnson's skin. He would call it the big lie. He was really annoyed that Nasser was accusing the United States of entering the war, which, and again, Johnson wanted to really, was not really in favor of this war because he didn't want to start another Vietnam in the Middle East. And he was very upset at Nasser. And because of that, he was kind of nod, nod, wink, wink, letting the Israelis take their time, you know, giving it to the Arabs. Eventually, in the sixth day, the war ends, and they rested on the seventh. Which is really why they gave the, the, I think it was Rabin, who named the the war, the six-day war. They offered him, what do you want to call the name of the war? And he liked the idea of six days, six days of creation. Israel conquers more than three and a half times the amount of land that Israel was before the, before, on June 4th, 1967. If you ever go to the old city of Jerusalem, one of the sad things that you might not realize, you go to the old city and you go to the Jewish quarter and you look at the old buildings and the old stones and everything's ancient and old. It's not true. If you go to the Jewish, Jewish quarter, they did a good job recreating it. But in 1948, when the Jordanians took the old quarter, the old city of Jerusalem, they demolished virtually everything that was in there. They rebuilt, it's been rebuilt and that Jerusalem stone theme now exists, but the Jerusalem, the old, the Jewish quarter lay in ruins. Immediately after the Six Day War, they brought in a bulldozer. They cleared out that big plaza that's in front of the hotel that you see today in front of the wall. It was in an Arab slum at that point. The following week after the Six Day War, it was the holiday of Shavuot. Five hundred thousand people, men, women, and children, walked to the hotel that night be at the Kotel, there are Jews today who will tell you, most irreligious people, so it was the most amazing, the highlight literally of their entire lives. And if you go to Israel today, go to Jerusalem, I've done it. It is unbelievable. On, Shavuot, on the holiday of Shavuot, first of all, there is a mitzvah of the to go see the temple. But I think it's because it's in the DNA of that country. Shavuot, which again, it's, it's kind of like, it was the, kind of the prize of the Six-Day War, everyone walks and I've done it. It's, it's just incredible. Four in the morning, you hear footsteps and you see just hundreds of thousands of people walking to, to the hotel to celebrate. What does the word Jew mean? I'm a Jew. What the word, what, have you ever thought about, what does the word Jew mean? The word Jew comes from Judah. One of the tribes, 12 sons of Jacob was Judah. And most, really, all. 12 tribe, 12 sons of Jacob, the Bay Israel. Anyone who's from the 12 tribes, you're Jewish. After the second, 12, second temple, really after, pardon me, after the first temple era, most Jews kind of got absorbed into the tribe of Judah, and that's where the name comes from. We're from the tribe of Judah or associated with the Judean kingdom. Where does the name Judah come from? The Torah says that when Leah gives birth to Judah, she says, Hapam Ode Es Hashem. This time, I want to show my gratitude and thanksgiving to God. And that's why she calls him Oda Yehudah. It's the same 
context, the name Yehuda, which is Jew, Judah, comes from that word, Hapam Odes Hashem. I want to give gratitude and thanksgiving to God. And says the Medrash, because Leah had that expression of gratitude, appreciation, kind of stuck in her DNA and her descendants would also have that feeling of gratitude and appreciation. So the hallmark of being Jewish is Hapam Odes Hashem. I give gratitude and thanksgiving to God. And indeed, the Medrash says, that's why King David, when he composes the Psalms, he says, Odu Hashem Kitov, Kili Olam Chasto. He gives gratitude and thanks to God, for he is good, for his kindness endures forever. Beautiful. The Medrash says, that's also why you'll find historically, you recall the story with Yehuda and Tamar, the same Judah. Yehuda gave a very complicated story. Gages in a complicated relationship with Tamar. There was a whole scandal, and he admits to the wrongdoing. Sudkami many, says Judah. She was righteous. I messed up. She was right. I was wrong. And he admits his guilt, and it was a shameful guilt, publicly. Sudkami many, he admits his guilt. And the Medr says it was that same Mida, that same characteristic of Leah. Having Akarasatov, having gratitude, that was the same reason how Judah, when it, get, when it was able to have the strength and courage to admit his guilt. And I asked my rabbi, what does admitting guilt have to do with gratitude? Listen, one has nothing to do with the other. My rabbi would always explain gratitude means acknowledging truth. Someone did something good to me, and I acknowledge it. God does something good to me, I acknowledge it. Admitting my mistakes is the same idea. I acknowledge the truth. I messed up. I'm sorry. I was wrong. You were right. It comes from a profound sense of acknowledging the realities of the world around us. To be Jewish means to be people of gratitude. To be people of gratitude means we have to acknowledge the truth of the world around us. One of my... Most, the most cherished story I've ever heard about the Six-Day War. I don't know if it's true. I hope it is. Moshe Dayan. Victor, warrior, conqueror. Akotel, Arbayit, Biadenu, the Jews. Capture the old city. Moshe Dayan, famous picture of him and Narcus. And Yitzchak Rabin triumphantly marching through the Lion's Gate. He goes to the Kotel. What do you do if you're at the Kotel, the Western Wall? Say a prayer. But you don't have to say a prayer. What do you do? It's ancient tradition. I don't know really where it comes from. You write a kvittel. Vos a kvittel? What's a kvittel? You write down a prayer on a sheet of paper and you stick it into the wall. I don't know why we do that. Jews do that. You don't need to do that. You can pray wherever you want. And when you go to the Kotel, you don't need to do that. It's an ancient tradition. Moshe Dayan was as secular a Jew as there has ever been in the state of Israel. Moshe Dayan decided he was going to write a kvittel. And he wrote a little prayer and put it into the wall. The Israeli media, being who they are, pulled it out. What did it say on Moshe Dayan's kvittel? It, I literally have shivers down my spine. May es Hashem aisa zos kineflos This came from God. It's a wonder in our eyes. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.